welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner. I believe in the power of sharing our experiences and knowledge with others, and when we do, we are creating ripples of impact around us. Each week, get ready for intimate personal shares, honest, relatable conversations, aha moments, and so much more. This space was designed to create empowerment, inspiration, community, and provide guidance to elevate those around us. I am so excited to have you here. Get ready and let's start creating ripples. Hello, welcome to the Creating Ripples podcast. I'm your host, Alexandra Zahner, and today I'm chatting with Chelsea Larson. I'm super excited to have Chelsea on the podcast. This is our fourth date together, and we're doing a podcast on the fourth date where we're going to get to know each other even on a deeper level, and I'm so excited you're here, Chelsea. Yeah, we are moving pretty fast, but I'd say that we're going pretty steady. It's going really well. It's so funny how life works out and how things that you do lead to other things that lead to other things. For example, it wasn't even that long ago when I found Sweat with Jess, where I started working out. And then a couple months later, I'm listening to her on your podcast. And I don't know you at all. And now we're friends and I'm on your podcast. And that was like in January, in December Yep, when she was on. So it's full circle. And I mean, when I say that we're dating, it's like we're friend dating. And I've talked about it, I think, before on the podcast, because it's hard to meet people as an adult. And so it's been fun to just like get to know Chelsea and who she is. And she's doing a lot of self-development and work on herself. And I'm really excited for her to share with all of you just some of the things that she's experienced, that she's gone through and the learnings. And one thing that she's really passionate about that we've talked a lot about is mental health and just destigmatizing that and empowering people through their mental health journeys. Yeah. So I've been, so first of all, I'm in nursing school right now and I'm currently taking mental and behavioral health, which is by far my favorite class, obviously. And I'm learning so many things about the history of mental health and it's blowing my freaking mind. So The first week we watch a documentary on asylums. So I'm thinking that asylums are gonna be like forever ago, right? And all I know about asylums is that it's where the crazy people went and it's like the worst place you could have gone. So we're watching this documentary and I'm learning that they were created in the 1700s. They were still around in the 90s. I'm talking about 1990. So we were alive when these were still running. They were shutting down. Uh, dramatically at that point, but um, I started to shut down in the 70s, 80s, and some were still operating in the 90s. So I'm thinking about this, and first of all, like the the people that went there, some of them, yes, had more, so mental health is a spectrum, right? It's not black or white. Um, some people are more severe, some people are less severe, and the people that were sent there, like some of them didn't really have that much saying quotes wrong with them like one girl grew up in a small town where everyone went to school and then worked in a factory and she was like fuck that I don't want to do that and was sent to an asylum so I made myself I'm like I would have been sent there like for sure but anyways that how they treated them as well there was so much abuse and 
like, for example, their treatment was lobotomies, which they drilled a hole in your skull and kind of like scrambled up your brain to try to like make you less depressed or less anxious or less fearful. And then they moved on to like ECT, which is the shock therapy. And then they found drugs and thought, well, this will cure everything. There was not once talk about talk therapy or why these people were in there in the first place. It was just like, how do we fix them? Because they are broken essentially. But anyways, the stigma of asylums, which is essentially the core of mental health, like not that long ago is huge. And so I'm thinking about this, like no wonder there's a stigma. It makes so much sense that these, like our parents and our grandparents grew up where asylums were the norm and that was the worst place you could possibly be. So I'm learning all of this and I'm for my first assignment, I'm watching this documentary, mind is blown. I have to write about it. And I wrote like, this reminds me of the stigma of alcoholism and addiction and how if you're listening and you hear those two words, alcoholic or addiction, what are you picturing? Because chances are you're picturing, again, it's a spectrum and you're picturing like the worst kind of case scenario. Like maybe you're picturing a homeless person on the street with a plastic or with a brown bag drinking, or maybe it's someone you know, or maybe it's your drunk uncle or whatever it is. You're probably thinking of the worst of the people with alcohol use disorder and that's less than 10% typically of the cases. And so the stigma is so big. And I like what Mastin Kip says about, um, he's a guy I follow on Instagram. Highly recommend following him. He does a lot of trauma work and he talks about PTSD. If you think about post-traumatic disorder, the D stands for disorder. If you change it to R and change it to response, that's what it is. It's a response to uh, trauma that is an attempt to make you feel safe and make you feel it's a survival technique. And so if you think about alcohol use disorder is that's what it's technically called in the books. The D, if you just switch it to R, response, then that's what it is. It's a response to external or internal, internal pain that you're trying to numb. And I'm reading a book, sorry, I'm kind of going on a tangent right now, but I've been thinking about this and I'm reading a book called The Choice, which is by Dr. Edith Eager. She was, uh, she went to Auschwitz when she was 16 and then immigrated to the United States. And the book is freaking phenomenal. She ends up becoming a psychiatrist and a whole lot of other things, but she talks about a woman that she was treating for an eating disorder. And again, the D stands for disorder, ED. And if you change it to response, that's pretty much what it is. And so the first thing she said that blew my mind was that the patient is actually the family. So her parents come in and they're like, what do we do? She's not eating this. She won't eat this. She's, she was basically starving herself. And then the second thing she said is, it's not what she eats or doesn't eat. It's what is eating her. And I just thought that was like, mind-blowing wow. so I wrote that down because it was incredible um but yeah that's we kind of covered a lot of ground there but that's kind of what's going through my mind so 
yeah, we talked, you just talked a lot about, you know, a variety of topics. And I think there's a lot of stigmas within mental health, within alcoholism and addiction, within eating disorders and not really understanding. But I think thinking of them less about as disorder, because I think sometimes that's where some of the stigma also arises is like thinking that you have a disorder, which has like this negative connotation of like something being wrong with you versus it's a response that you have to things that are occurring in your life. Maybe the people around you, the things that like you were talking about, like the things that are like eating you up versus like, I mean, when you're referring to an eating disorder, I think what you were talking about with that doctor, it's like shifting that narrative because for so long, when we look at the people that are struggling with alcoholism and addiction or mental health, it's like, there must be so many things wrong with them. And like going back to the asylums, it's like, how can we fix them? What can we do to help them? And it's crazy to hear some of the things that were normal and okay when it's like, yeah, these people are struggling, but you doing a lobotomy on them isn't going to help them with what they're experiencing. And we've come a long, long way in understanding mental health, but we still have a long ways to go. And I think there is still a huge stigma around mental health, eating disorders, alcoholism, addiction, all of these different labels. Uh, It's scary to label yourself. And so how do we as a society get away from this idea that you have to be labeled if there's something that you're going through and instead empowering people to seek help and want to self-develop and take care of themselves in a sense versus like feeling like they have to label themselves when something um when something doesn't feel right like I, I don't know like for me drinking didn't feel right for me it wasn't going well but I felt like I had to label myself for people to understand that I wasn't going to drink anymore and I don't know there's there's just like a lot of different things that we're talking about right now like the stigma the labels I'm just curious, kind of Chelsea, your thoughts on all of these things. Yeah, you covered a lot there. And I think there's a lot of different ways we could go, but I'll start with my experience with mental health. I try to make it short. I had smooth sailing through my childhood as I grew up in Woodbury, great family, great home. Um, pretty good experience in high school. I had a good high high school experience, good college experience until senior year. I was very depressed. Although at that time I would never have said that or admitted that. And because I believed at the time that depression was the worst thing or depressed was the worst thing you could possibly be. And it was a label, right? And so I, I pushed that away as hard as I could. I buried all my feelings and emotions that were bubbling up, pushed them down. Um, I ended up moving to Denver about a year after college. First, I donated a kidney, then I moved to Denver. And then I found I was I was really struggling. And I, um, I quit drinking while I was there for four months. um, Because I went home with a guy that um, I thought was turned off by the fact that I went home with him. And that was the first time that I felt like that. And I was ashamed. I felt a lot of shame. And I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I felt like for the first time I met like a nice guy and I, I blew it. And so I quit drinking for four months and I was absolutely miserable because I did it for somebody else. And also I 
wasn't seeing a therapist. Um, back in college, that senior year, when I, I was going through a very hard time, I saw one therapist one time. I cried through the whole thing. I thought it was the worst experience of my life. And I didn't go back. And then I'm in Denver. And I um, actually, like, I took those four months off drinking. I started drinking again around my birthday. And around that time, I found a therapist that I really liked. And for the first time, I, I saw a therapist regularly. Um, I wouldn't say she didn't help me, but she was more of like a friend that I could talk to, which is good. And that's always good. But I wasn't really healing anything. Um, and so I found another therapist that was helpful, but then I moved back home and she couldn't, by state laws, couldn't help me. Uh, so I found another one here that kind of same thing was like, I really liked her, like would have been friends with her on the outside world in the outside world. And then um, didn't feel like I was really moving forward. Ended up in a very bad place about, I don't know, a year and a half ago where I didn't have a job, which we've talked about this before, Alex. I am uh, Enneagram three, which basically means overachiever. And if I'm not working, I feel like I have no purpose in life and it's a recipe for depression. And I, now I know that about myself. Um, but I, I kind of got myself stuck in this, this point in my life where I wasn't working. I was leaving my church, um, because I found out that they didn't support the LGBTQ community. And that was very depressing because it threw off my whole belief system, but also like all my friends were there. Um, not all my friends, a lot of my friends were there. Um, my stepdad was dying of ALS. I was single as fuck. And that all played in a, this a role in uh, being very depressed and going through a very hard time. Um, I knew I needed help, but that was kind of like a rock bottom moment too, where it's like, all right, I like can finally admit that I need help. So I found a therapist, like pretty randomly just Googled for one near me, was not looking for a trauma-informed therapist at all. Um, in fact, I thought she was kind of weird at, in the beginning. Like the first three sessions, I was like, yeah, I don't know. She's kind of weird. And then I kept going and she, she helped me and she was helping me. And it was the first therapist who ever brought up trauma because at that time I did not believe I had any trauma. Um, the first time she brought it up, I was like, I've never been to war. Like, I don't have trauma, so I don't know what you're talking about. And then she explained to me, and I think this is helpful for, helpful for the listeners if they've never heard this, there can be big T and little T trauma, which I heard somebody talk about this the other day, like, don't really love the big T, little T, because then it's like comparing trauma to trauma. And it's just simply big T trauma are the things we think of the war, the car accident, the death of a parent, death of a child, uh, sexual, physical assault. And then the little T traumas are, um, can be um, a parent that denies your reality, a parent that is not um, in tune with their emotions and can't help you do that. Um, it can be, um, man, so many things. Uh, but anyways, I, learning about all of this. And it was the first time that I felt like I understood myself. And I felt like that my mental health and some of my reactions in life that I shamed and I tried to like, or I thought what's wrong with me, I need to fix this. For the first time I felt, I, or I saw it as a response and I didn't feel that stigma. And now I can sit here and be like, 
I don't feel any stigma around my mental health. I am very happy to talk about it, but I, I forget sometimes that only a few years ago, I still very much had that stigma mentality because my, you know, my parents grew up where they didn't talk about anything. And that was part of the problem, right? Like when you don't talk about any emotion, um, you don't know how to even acknowledge your emotions. You don't know what you're feeling and you don't know how to express it. Um, I grew up in a family where, yeah, we didn't talk about anything. And if you had any of those bad emotions, and again, there's no bad or good emotions, they're just emotions and they're fleeting no matter how long they stick around. Um, I was not, I didn't feel like I was allowed to express any of those. So, you know, anger, sadness, if, if I felt any of that, it was like, don't let anybody know and put it under the rug, bury it inside, which we know that trauma is stored in the body. Those emotions are stored in the body and they will come out as a trauma response or as a reaction to something. And it, it doesn't make sense for a lot of people. Um, and it didn't make sense for me until seeing a trauma therapist that helped explain these things to me because I essentially didn't understand myself and to be completely honest, hated myself. So I think one of the things, the big takeaways is it, it takes a lot of work to get to where you are today, to be able to sit here, talk about your experience, what you've gone through, what you've um, discussed in therapy, what you've learned in therapy. And many people probably can relate to where you were a few years ago of feeling alone in what you're experiencing, Maybe also they relate to that feeling of not being able to express your emotions, talk about your feelings. And so it's, I think like the first step, you know, is getting that help, talking to that therapist, working through and discussing everything that you're going through, but that can be really scary and intimidating for people. And when you were, you know, a few years ago yourself trying to find your therapist, I think how did you start, how did you start to push yourself forward despite the stigma and despite, you know, maybe the feelings that you might've been experiencing of like stepping forward for yourself and working through therapy? Yeah, I think I was so desperate at that point that I didn't really, I didn't have a choice. I felt like, um, because when things aren't terrible, or if they're good, you feel like you don't have to go to therapy or do certain things. Now I recognize that now I'm in a good place now, and I will still go to therapy every week or every other week, because we're always growing, we're always learning, we're always going to be healing. That's the thing that I didn't understand is uh, when I first went into therapy, it's like, all right, I, I laid it out for her. I said, these are my problems that I need to fix. And then I'll be done with you basically. And she was like, mm -mm. <laughs> that's not how it works. And I didn't understand that. Um, we will be healing for the rest of our lives. Uh, but it gets better, it gets easier over time. Um, but it's a constant process. And I think this just reminded me of, I had kind of hit my rock bottom emotionally and was so desperate and started that therapy. It's kind of, Alex, I, how we became friends and 
how we know each other is through being sober. So I've only been sober for four months, but um, we you started this book club um, where we read Quit Like a Woman, which was honestly life-changing because it was the first time that I heard someone say, you don't have to hit rock bottom, that if you don't have a healthy relationship with alcohol, or even if it just doesn't make you feel good, you don't have to do it. And I had never heard someone say that before. I, th there's also that stigma of like, we talked about alcoholism and addiction. I truly believed, and I still have an issue kind of with the word alcoholic and addiction, but I believed that was the worst thing you could be. And so I even asked my mom a couple years ago, am I an alcoholic? Because there were times where I drink too much. And I think a lot of us experience those times, but um, she was like, no, God, no, because I think she had that fear as well of, of that word and of not wanting to have a daughter who's an alcoholic. And that um, reading that book was the first time that I was able to I don't know how to put this. There's just so many emotions about that book, but essentially the first time that I was given permission and then I don't want to say permission because I have permission to do whatever I want. I'm a human and I'm an adult, but she gave us um, the permission to say no, no matter what, where we're at. So yeah, I've, I have a lot of feelings about this and I, my brain is um, kind of all over the place. There's so many things I want to unpack and I want to go back just a little bit when you were talking about the therapy of just, you know, even when things aren't terrible and bad, there's still an advantage to seeing a therapist and meeting with someone and discussing what you're experiencing in life and what you're going through. And I think that is such an important message because it's almost like, and you were talking about it for yourself. You were like, I've got some shit I need to work through. Once we get it done, I'm going to be out of here. And your therapist was kind of like, nah, dude, we're in it together. And I think one thing to note when you are someone that you're listening and you're like, oh shit, maybe, maybe I should start to see a therapist. I think a big message of what Chelsea is saying is anybody can benefit from therapy. You don't have to have a problem or something that you need to work through. It's just really beneficial to have someone that you can go through to talk about whatever it is that you're experiencing in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the highs, the lows, and have someone that can just kind of like be there as like an outside resource to utilize. And one thing I think that's really important is when you're looking for a therapist, you kind of might have to shop around. Like, don't feel like you go to this first therapist and it's not a great fit, you know, don't feel like, oh, therapy's not for me. If you might just need to find a different therapist. I think that was a really important nugget that um, one of my friends told me was you got to date around a little bit with your therapist because you're essentially starting this relationship with this person that they're going to be investing in you and it want, you want it to feel right. That's the hardest part is finding someone like I said, even my last one, like I thought she was kind of weird and I was gonna try again because I was so desperate. Normally 
I would probably hit that point and then stop seeing her and everyone all together. Um, but some of them are not saying some of them aren't good, but some of them have different backgrounds, have different experiences, have different perspectives. Um, and some of them you just don't jive with. And it's, it is a relationship. Um, and also going back to what you said about um, everyone can benefit from therapy. So like I said, in that book, The Choice, where she said the, the family is the actual patient. Like even if you yourself don't struggle, but you have a sister, you have a mom, you have a daughter, you have a brother, you have a father that struggles, you can benefit from it, um, which is everybody in the world. So I think that was huge for me because um, my family doesn't go to therapy. I'm the only one. And for the longest time, I thought that I was fucked up. <laughs> I thought I was broken. You know, I thought I'm the only one out of the family that has these issues when they all could have been benefiting from it. Um, so I think that that is huge. It's like we go to therapy because it also will help us have a better understanding of the people that are in our lives and the relationships that we have with them. Because sometimes, I mean, even in our marriage therapy, like premarital therapy, we talked about our relationships with our parents and the roles that they had growing up because th there wasn't anything with Jordan and I like specifically to that. Like we talked a lot, Jordan and I about us and that also came up in premarital therapy, but um, I've talked about this before. One of the most eye-opening things for me was just discussing the roles and relationships that our parents had in the family dynamic because how you grow up in your family that impacts your vision on the family and the household and the roles and how things go. And so we talked that through in our therapy session of just, you know, what was Jordan expecting from me as his wife and what was I expecting from him as my husband? And we're pretty good about having really good open and honest conversations, but that would have been something I never would have thought about us discussing before we got married had we not been in therapy. And it just allowed us to have like a really good understanding of, you know, what we were expecting, how we wanted each other to show up in a relationship. Um, I, I love my mom and she's wonderful. Um, but we talked about just like her and I's relationship and just there being a little bit of lack of boundary and how that might impact Jordan and I's marriage. And there's just like so much benefit to seeing someone that's going to really open your eyes to looking at the people around your life, how they're impacting you in ways that you might not even recognize, and then how you can make a shift to strengthen those relationships or maybe step back from them if that's what's going to benefit you the most. Yeah, having that third party's perspective to see things another way, but also I've never been in therapy with another person. And I think if when I get into a relationship, I think I 100% want to do that because yeah, that's not, those conversations are not easy to have. And even if you are someone that's um, comfortable, it's yeah, stuff that you maybe wouldn't even think of bringing up, but it all plays a role in our relationships. And, and to be honest, the health of the relationship, because we're always triggering each other. And I think trigger is kind of a buzzword right now, but that's what's happening is we're all being triggered and having responses to things that aren't necessarily true to the moment, but something that happened 
maybe 20 years ago, maybe two years ago that you're having a reaction towards and it's not even your partner's fault. Maybe it's how, how you were raised. And then if you're not talking about those things, then you're probably um, not understanding each other. Yeah. Therapy, I feel like is this like mystery, beautiful experience that everyone should be a part of, but it's scary to want to start and want to move into therapy for exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation for that stigma of, oh, you're in therapy. And it's like, how do we, how do we get away from that in our society and not view therapy as something that should be scary to tell people that you're a part of. It's so funny because I don't feel that way now. Like I will shout from the rooftops that up until a couple months ago, I was seeing two therapists. Um, then I started seeing the somatic therapist, which is um, if a psychist is, which is talk therapy is from your body or your brain to your body, um, a somatic therapist from your body, to your brain. And I think that has completely changed my life, uh, somatic therapy, but I will shout from the rooftops that I see two therapists and I like, I love it. I love them. Um, and it's so funny because I forget that I used to be like hush hush about it. Um, because I just posted yesterday on my Instagram, that thing, like if you, if mental health was quieted when you were younger, that's probably why you're having a difficult time speaking about it now, which was my experience forever. Now it is not. Um, but same thing with emotions. I always used to shame myself. Like, why can't I like understand my emotions or express them. I have a really hard time talking about how I feel and even like even knowing how I feel. And like, no wonder I, I wasn't taught that. And as an adult, that's a really hard thing to learn. So I need to give myself some grace there. But if people talk about um, therapy now, I get so freaking pumped. And then also like if people ask what my type is in looking for a partner, um, it's a guy that goes to therapy. That's my type like nothing else. And I, I think that's funny because like, that's all I really care about is someone that is willing to do that personal growth and not even the personal growth, but taking a look at, um, how they can help their loved ones and people around them. So right now, Chelsea is screaming from the rooftops about your <laughs> therapy experience. But how does someone that relates to the Chelsea you were a few years ago before you started therapy, how do they step forward if they're listening and they're like, oh gosh, she's speaking to my soul right now, but I am like so scared to take that next step. Yeah, that is so valid. Um, so first of all, your feelings are valid. Um, this is a tough one because I understand what it's like to be in that position, but it's so freeing when you're out, I will say. Um, I remember the first time I posted something like personal on Instagram, I was scared shitless to post it. And that was like my most liked picture. People love vulnerability, but when you're in it and before you do it, it's the scariest shipper, but people love it. Uh, we were talking about this in book club. I was watching my Sunday morning CBS, like I do every Sunday. And they had a special, there's Osborne, um, which, you know, I like country. I like them, I guess. Like 
you know, wasn't a huge fan before. Um, one of them talked about their struggles with depression and anxiety and how they almost had to cancel their tour because he was like not well. The other one um, talked about coming out as gay and in particularly in a country genre, that is um, that is a scary thing to do. And I was so pumped about Brothers Aswar and afterwards, like I will buy all their albums. I'm their number one fan because they shared who they truly are and I thought it was beautiful and then also people like relate to you and before I had this feeling like I had to show up as perfect and I think a lot of us have that uh, particularly with social media because it is a highlight reel we know that um perfectionism is a can be a trauma response it is a survival response to um not let anybody see what is actually going on um something for me that has really helped that is well unfollowing the people that don't make you feel good on social media but then following the people that are vulnerable that do talk about mental health that talk about trauma because when I listen to podcasts or see posts on Instagram that make me feel understood that is what helps me talk about it because somebody hopefully somebody is listening and is getting some value out of this and saying oh I went through that too but I thought I was the only one and I thought that for a long time but <laughs> there's 327 million people in the United States alone you 100% are not the only one and I think what you're talking about is so empowering right if you are feeling lost or confused or even like you're in a really good place, but you're listening and you're feeling like drawn to want to start therapy or find a therapist. Don't be afraid to do that because you're doing it for yourself. You're taking a step forward to take care of you and your needs. And it can be really scary at first to do something like that, but it, in the end, it's going to be so helpful and so beneficial. And don't be afraid to do something that is going to better you, even if it feels like there's this stigma around it, which I hate that there is this stigma around so many things in our society. We have a long ways to go within mental health and alcohol and addiction. And I, I just want people to feel empowered. And that's what Chelsea and I were talking about before we started recording is feel empowered in doing what they need to do for themselves. Yeah, it doesn't have to be therapy because therapy is very expensive um to me it's the the fastest track to how I've gotten to where I am and I'm coming from a place of privilege which I don't love that but it is what it is and I am very privileged to be able to afford two therapists at one point um but just podcasts are free I listen to a podcast pretty much every day um that always teaches me something about myself. And I, I switched from, you know, every once in a while I'll mix in a, a funny podcast or I love the bachelor franchise. <laughs> so a podcast about that, you know, just to, if I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed with my feelings, just something to take your mind off of it. Um, but most of the time it's, um, podcasts that are very focused on personal development, mental health, trauma, um, 
And so every day I'm hearing something that is either relatable to me or somebody that I know. And those are free. Um, YouTube is free. Books are not free, but um, libraries are free. Uh, the, the breath house breathing classes I do um, are not free, but it's much cheaper than, than therapy. It doesn't have to be therapy, although I think everyone can benefit from that. But I think that's important to remember is just doing things for you um, is all that really matters. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a society where, especially as women, but all genders, um, we want to be selfless and we want to please other people and we want to be loved. But doing stuff for me to love myself is by far better than doing something for somebody else to get that love from externally. And just when you can do the things that are going to allow you to fall even more in love with yourself, which is the most important relationship that we have is self-love, which I think when we can focus in on that and recognize that that's not selfish, it's important and it's necessary work. And I, I think there's just, I loved what you were saying, Chelsea, is there's, there's so many ways to take care of yourself if therapy right now isn't something that's available to you. There is so many other options. Going on a walk outdoors, you could just be in the nature and like take it in and like take that clarity break for yourself. Or like Chelsea was saying, listen to that podcast. You know, whatever it is, maybe it's just taking like a 30 minute bath. I don't know. Like, you know, like those little things that you can do for yourself to take care of you and like invest back in you are going to be so worthwhile years down when you can look back and be like wow I have created this relationship with myself where I truly love myself and the person that I am today yeah and that's a hard freaking journey um it's not perfect I love myself a <laughs> hell no I love myself a lot more um than I I like I said I it was, it's very sad thinking about it. Um, but when I lived in Denver, so this must have been like mm, five years ago, I was really struggling and I had more friends than I needed. I had so many friends. I've always had a lot of friends. And I think that's part of the stigma and, and misperceptions that people have about mental health is like, what do you mean you're depressed? Like you look fine and you seem fine and you have all these friends, but the most depressed I've ever been is when I've had the most friends and I felt the most alone. So that really has nothing to do with it. And at the same time, where was I going with this? <laughs> oh, um, when I was in Denver and my mom actually helped me figure out that we thought this was the problem at the time. Um, I, I'm not saying it's not, but I've developed on my thoughts about this, but that I had low self-esteem, like that was the issue. And that's where we would start. And I even saw um, an author of a book, she wrote Breaking the Chain of Low Self-Esteem or something like that. Um, my mom got her to do one-on-ones with me. Um, so that's even a therapist that I forgot I worked with, but um, I, 
knew that a lot of, I knew that a lot of people liked me and a lot of people loved me, but I hated myself. And unfortunately, no one ever told me at that time, maybe I did, maybe they did. And I wasn't ready to hear it. I don't know. But no one at the time told me to come back into my body, which is what that somatic therapy has done for me. No one told me to do that. And so it it may have helped short term, but like I was still looking for that external validation and that does not help. (laughs) So I, yeah, it's, I was reading through my journals yesterday, actually, of like from that time where I hated myself and it's, it's sad and I've come a long way, but when you go your whole life seeking that external validation, um, and you may be getting it, but if you're not internally validating yourself, like you're not going to be in a good spot probably. And that ties perfectly in with, you know, drinking and alcohol (laughs) and how it's, as a culture, we say, oh, you had a shitty day, have a glass of wine and you're going to feel yep. so much better. And it's like this external thing at like, I drink wine, I feel better, but it's actually not what's going to happen. It's just going to maybe like make you forget about what's going on for like the time being. And then you haven't done anything to better yourself in that moment, other than just like drinking something and you haven't done any internal work though Mm -hmm. and that to me is just like so mind-blowing because as a society I feel like we so heavily weigh on the idea of like shitty day stressed out want to have fun great alcohol is the only answer to get you (laughs) into those things and it's like that's not fucking true it's actually the opposite you can have fun drinking. And I'm not saying like, don't ever drink, but I think there's an important message here that alcohol actually isn't going to de-stress you. Alcohol is not going to solve your problems. Mm -hmm. You recognizing where that stress, where that anxiety is coming from and doing the actual work. Maybe it's having a discussion with a friend, being in a self-development program, going to therapy, that's actually going to make a difference. Having alcohol work you through your problems is just going to be a band-aid. And then you're going to wake up the next morning and be just as stressed and just as anxious because you actually didn't invest into yourself at all. And I just want to challenge people to like, think about that a little bit of like, how can you show up for yourself? Maybe it's doing a little bit of that inner work, going to therapy and then having that glass of wine, but recognizing like that alcohol is not going to be the end all be all. And it's not going to actually solve your problems at all. You nailed it. And I do, I do want to talk about alcohol, but really this, this conversation is much bigger than alcohol. And can I, can we start with a little, um, a little experiment? Yeah. And this is for you and everybody listening, kind of do it in in your head, because I was listening to a podcast, obviously about, um, it was with, I think his name is Gaber Mate, Gaber Mate. He's a a doctor in Canada and he works with um, typically homeless people on addiction. Um, But he has it kind of from a trauma lens. And he says, that addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds pleasure or relief in the short term and therefore craves, suffers negative consequences and doesn't give it up. This can be drugs, caffeine, sex, porn, profit, work, eating, self-harming. I'd also add uh, sugar, uh, love, 
uh, gambling. There are many, many more. Um, so Alex, can I ask you, have you ever had anything that may fall into that description? Yes. <laughs> so um, let's, let's um, and you can do something else if you want to, but let's focus on when you were drinking, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, and it, it can be something else too. Um, what did it, what did you like about it and what did it give you? I liked about alcohol. What I liked about alcohol was just like this feeling of kind of almost being, well, in the beginning, unstoppable and like so outgoing and like I could do anything and I was on top of the world. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So you felt unstoppable. And what was the other word? Um, outgoing. Outgoing. So are those good or bad things? I, mean, I think they're good. Yeah, I, yeah, I would say that. Um, yeah, I, for me, like it brought that outgoing also leads to attention that mm -hmm. like looks like love, right? Yep. That looks like affirmation. So those are all good things, right? Um, so in other words, your addiction in quotes wasn't your problem. It was your lack of feeling unstoppable, your lack of feeling outgoing, right? Your lack of feeling loved or getting that attention. Um, and the addiction was an attempt to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So I was having a conversation with um, someone I love very deeply. Um, we were talking about addiction and how um, sh her brother is experiencing um, going through alcohol addiction. and she she made the comment like she wasn't shaming him or anything but just saying I can't relate and I thought about it for a second and I thought can you though like think about that again because we all have something doesn't have to be alcohol we all have something that we can be addicted to for a long time for me and even now like last week I talked to my therapist about eating and sometimes not as bad as it used to be, but sometimes I crave, um, like, I don't even like pizza, but I'll crave pizza because I'm kind of feeling, these feelings are coming up, right? And I want to soothe them. And food is a great option. Um, well, in the short term, right? Not in the long term. Um, but same with alcohol. Like it was to numb those big feelings and emotions I had. As I always had big feelings and emotion. I'm a freaking cancer. Um, which means I'm emotional as hell. I'm sensitive as hell. And I've always had these from the day I was born, but um, growing up, those weren't okay to express. And so I shoved them down. And so when they came up, when I found alcohol, it was a great opportunity to not feel those things. Mm -hmm. um, Honey on your podcast talked about essentially being addicted to people because when you were around people, you don't have to sit with yourself. Now I love being alone. I love being with myself. Um, but before that was not, that was not the case. But yeah, I just find it interesting that people will look at alcohol addiction or drug addiction and have that stigma when it's like, well, are you a workaholic? <laughs> because that may look better they be more acceptable to society but it's the same thing that's such a great way to think about it I do have to tell you I'm still kind of hung up on the fact you said you don't really like pizza 
Um, we'll have to talk about that later. <laughs> we'll have to debunk that later. Yeah. Um, I can't stop thinking about that. Like Jordan. or ice cream. Or ice oh cream. my god! I know. Oh my god! If you want to break up now, like let's Holy just do it now. Moly. I have a whole like highlight on my Instagram just dedicated to ice cream. I love ice cream. I could talk about it. I support your ice cream eating. Like I was really intrigued when you got your A, a to Z or whatever it's called. Oh my God. I was shout out to A to Z Creamery if you're in Minnesota. <laughs> it's magic. It's magic. I've heard about it because my friend Jordan, who is the best, um, talked about that a lot, but I had no interest in getting it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this was my first time trying, I will say it was really what hard. Did, what did we think? What did we rate it? I would give it a 10 for sure. I mean, man, I don't want to like steer the podcast off course, but like he made cookie dough flavored ice cream. Like the ice cream literally tasted like cookie dough. And then there was fresh oh. chocolate chip cookie chunks, like oh. doughy chocolate chip cookie and then chocolate chips and cookie dough in it. And I'm like, don't want to finish it because I'll know I'll never get to have it again. It's like really mm. sad to me. And Jordan told me he had ate it all while we were on our call the other night. And I'm not kidding. I thought I was going to cry. Like tears. <laughs> He's like, it's gone. I'm sorry. And I was like, where is it? I seriously can't find it in the freezer. And he's like, Al, it's gone. And I, I was like, there's no way he would do this to me. And he did it. Thank gosh. But Alex. Well, are you addicted to ice cream? Probably, honestly. <laughs> I don't I don't eat it that much as I used to. I used to be, yeah, I used to I used to eat it a lot. I just love it, but I don't eat it at all. Yeah. yeah. And that's fine. I think that's you found something you love. And it's but, just that's just not for me. I love potatoes. I don't love ice cream. Have you had the potato churros at Martina? Maybe uh, this is this is really bad. I, I'm not a fancy potato eater, okay? I'm a okay. I'm a McDonald's fried. Uh, oh, hash fries. brown. Oh God, <laughs> we're getting on such a tangent right now, <laughs> but I don't mind it. This is a no, for my 16th birthday. I had a potato potluck. Oh it was a surprise. God. So yeah, and I'm a sweets person. My graduation party in high school was all sweets: ice cream, cookies, every flavored Rice Krispie bar. No food. No food. <laughs> Just or like no no nutrients. No, just <laughs> sugar, just sugar. So and beer probably. No beer. My family oh. is not big drinkers, and my mom oh. was like not. I mean, I don't think there was. Yeah, we were like not like that was like not. We were not. My parents were not the ones to be like come on over and drink, even though my house was the party house. They mm. just didn't they were not the condoners of it yeah that makes sense it's probably it's probably healthy it was like yeah. very sneaky sneakily it was the party house sorry mom and dad if you're listening now they know <laughs> they they knew they knew <laughs> they knew afterwards and sometimes during but yeah I mean that's the thing is like when I think back to my drinking at that young age it was like so easily masked by everyone around because everyone was doing it and then when I finally like started to realize like my drinking was showing up in a different way than other people's and it wasn't as much fun for me as like serving me in that like outgoing and unstoppable feeling, 
that started to go away and it more started to cause problems of like anxiety and stress. And like, I was trying to like control the situation. Like I'm only going to drink a little bit and then it would go down this like rabbit hole. And for me, that's when I was like, this is just like not fun for me. It's actually like more stressful. And I also reached like my own personal rock bottom, but what you were talking about Chelsea earlier with quit like a woman, what I love, love, love about that book is it doesn't make you feel like you have to hit rock bottom or identify as an alcoholic to want to eliminate alcohol from your life. And that is like so encouraging to me and makes me so, so happy. And I think everybody, every human needs to read the book, quit like a woman, man, woman, whatever you identify with, you are going to benefit from this book because it's going to challenge you. It's going to challenge you to look at your relationship with not only alcohol, but just like life in general and how you're showing up for yourself. And I got to read that book after being six years sober. And it was just so eye-opening for me. I mean, I've identified as an alcoholic for the first six years of my sobriety. And now I'm starting to recognize that I might not even have to do that. I can just not want to drink. But as a society, we like push this idea of you have to identify as an alcoholic to stop drinking because otherwise it's like, why would you stop drinking? If you're not an alcoholic, why wouldn't you want to drink? And it's like, well, actually alcohol can like be very detrimental in so many other ways that people that might not identify as an alcoholic can remove it. And she helps us to feel empowered in making that decision. And I just think it's such a cool thing. And I I don't know, I think everyone should just challenge themselves to like, look at your relationship with alcohol and how it's showing up and read that book on Audible, however you want to do it. I don't know. And I mean, that's literally why Chelsea is still sober today because I, I mean, it's such an empowering book. It doesn't make you feel like you have to be an alcoholic to not want to drink. Yeah. You, thank you for starting that book club because I actually first heard about Holly because of um, Jess's episode with you where you mentioned Tempest and I looked it up right right away because I was intrigued. Um, But going back to your drinking days and same thing for me, like for a while, the benefits outweighed the risks. There were certainly that anxiety. There was certainly that, oh, that anxiety was so bad, but the benefits of feeling outgoing and like you could do anything for a while that outweighed those risks right and then it gets to a certain point where they don't um the labeling thing is huge I think words are very important this is for me personally um labeling myself does not help me that shames me it makes me feel shame Mm -hmm. so the word alcoholic does not make me feel very good and so I'm not going to use it Mm -hmm. um however it does help in certain situations like you said like and some people are different than me and they may feel like call it or labeling themselves an alcoholic is helpful for them Mm -hmm. but for a while that was like your only option and now we're kind of saying all right well if that makes you feel more shame then that is not helpful and you don't have to use that um because for me yeah that the the label is not helpful but where was I going to go with this? Um, I think with my drinking too, 
I never felt, I didn't quit drinking because first of all, it's a comparison game, right? Where do I do that? Do I look like them? No. Okay. Then I'll keep drinking. Do I need to go to AA? No. Okay. I'll keep drinking because I uh, did not think I belonged in, in AA. I didn't think I was even allowed to go. Now that I've taken a step back and looked at my drinking a lot more closely, definitely could have been there. Um, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. And so my brain thought, okay, well, then you don't have a problem and you can just keep drinking. And I think so many people kind of go through that um, a lot more than we even realize. And Quit Like a Woman was the first time I read it and every page it was like, oh, I relate to that. I see myself in that. And not drinking and not cutting off myself from myself is the biggest gift I've given myself. To be able to feel those feelings is not always fun, but it is how you heal. Mm -hmm. And this is the work. And if we're constantly numbing ourselves with whatever it is, if it's food, alcohol, now, now that I'm not drinking, it's like, oh, I want that pizza. And then it's like, why do I want that pizza so bad? What am I feeling? And sitting in that is not glamorous, fucking sucks. But it's, you need to feel to heal. Mm -hmm. And it's like cliche and like shitty as that sounds, to be honest, like that's not what I want to hear either, but it's what I found to be the truth. Mm -hmm. It's necessary. The work is necessary. Uh, I don't know. I love the book so much. And there's just so much I wish that everyone I talk, I seriously could talk about it all the time. I want everyone to read it. Um, even if you don't relate, I think it's really eye opening to just hear if you know someone that is sober or someone, you know, what she talks about is you don't have to be an alcoholic. You can be a gray area drinker. You can be sober curious. It's just really eye-opening and you can learn a lot about your friends that are sober. And I think if you want to show up for the people in your life that you love and care about getting to know a little bit more about sobriety and how you can support them is really, really important because it's not an easy journey. It can feel really isolating, just like we were talking about with mental health. And the more that we can talk about these experiences that we're going through, the less isolating it's going to feel. I mean, that was literally the catalyst for me wanting to start this podcast is to help people feel less alone in their experiences because so often we can be in a rut or we can be feeling sad and it can feel really lonely. And then you talk about it and you realize you're not alone. I mean, Chelsea and I are in a group that meets on Tuesdays and I was just, I've just been feeling like in like a weird funk and I messaged our group and I just said, can we just all just kind of check in on each other and see how things are going? And I was like, I don't know if I'm the only one feeling this, but I just think it could be nice. And everyone back and was like, yeah, I've been kind of feeling that too. Maybe not in the exact same way, but we all were kind of thinking about 
it can, even in those small little moments, it can feel like, God, am I the only one that just feels stressed or feels unmotivated, whatever it may be. And then we all met and we all talked and there was a lot of crossover in what we were experiencing. And I think it's important to remember, it might not be the big experiences where we're feeling alone. Sometimes it can be just like having a shitty day and feeling like everyone else around me is so happy and jolly. And I'm like having a bad day, but truth is, how many people did you say were in the US? Millions and millions and millions. 300, 327. 327 million. There is probably someone else having a shitty day too. Like you're not alone in what you're going through. Approximately 327. Approximately. <laughs> Don't, Don't sue quote me. Us. Uh, um, no, I think that's one of the main reasons that AA works is the community aspect of witnessing other people that are struggling too. And then being able to, to say your struggles have people that don't run away. And that's like your book club and your Tuesday meetings that I've since joined, like quite honestly, like are saving me. Like having that community, I wouldn't be sober if, if you didn't have those communities right now. Because I would have not, I wouldn't have had anybody that is in the same boat as me. And probably nothing would have bad happened because of my drinking on the outside world, but internally, certainly. Um, I think of your episode with Laura, who uh, talked about her divorce. And one of the first questions people want to ask is why, which is 100%. <laughs> what I want to ask too, when people say something like that, because you just, you want to know, and you're not coming from a bad place. But when you tell people you're sober, Alex, or I tell people, the first question is why? And Mm -hmm. first of all, I want to say, why not? Mm -hmm. But also it's like, how much time do you have to list all the reasons why? It's not a simple answer. And I think that is what terrified me before is, I don't think anybody looked at me and said, "Mm, She's got to go to AA. Certainly no one said that to my face, but that's where it was difficult for me because some people look at me, even a a guy that has been sober through AA for 35 years, we've talked about this. um, Basically he read Quit Like a Woman or part of it and just said, she was a girl that had a couple problems drinking and like, who does she think she is? Which I relate to Holly in a lot of the things she said. So he was essentially saying that to me. And it's like, well, then am I not worthy of sobriety? Or I should, you're essentially saying I should just keep on drinking because I don't have a problem. Just because my problem didn't look like your problem. Mm -hmm. Just because I haven't gotten a DUI does not mean that I have to drink. It's like, it's so weird because when I talk to people too, if I'm talking to someone sober, like I almost, ex- I don't exaggerate, I don't lie, but I like almost exaggerate my drinking or just I tell like the stuff you don't want to tell just anybody to because you guys understand. But when you're talking to somebody that's not sober, that doesn't understand, I almost like downplay it, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like this weird like balance I'm trying to find of like, I'm in the middle ground and I'm trying to 
but that's the thing is you don't have to have people understand because mm-hmm. some people just won't but that is incredibly frustrating that's the same with your mental health if people don't understand that you're struggling that you can have a good childhood or have a good life or like have a good job and still be depressed like people don't understand that sometimes mm-hmm. if they don't understand that that's their problem but you take it personally and you want to make them understand but you can't yeah that but I really I was just gonna say that's such such a challenge in all of these areas I just related to Laura saying um the why thing because I'm so quick to want to ask that too and it's it just reminds you to take a step back and maybe think why not mm-hmm. think of another question to ask yeah because <laughs> that can be frustrating I mean even just saying you know it, I there's a few things here that I want to discuss a little bit more first off people aren't going to understand they're not some people will and some people won't And I think it's a good reminder too that everyone has their own personal reasons for wanting to make a change in their life. It's not linear, right? It's not like you have to get a DUI to want to get sober or you have to have something so tragic happen in your life for you to be depressed, right? It's not linear. And so when we start to make people feel like it has to be this linear experience, and that you have to have gone through something or label yourself as an alcoholic or whatever it is, that's when I feel like it's harder for people to recognize that maybe they do identify as someone that does want to get sober. Not They don't have to identify as an alcoholic, but they can identify as, you know what, I want to remove alcohol from my life. It's not serving me in a certain way. It doesn't have to be the DUI. It doesn't have to be getting arrested for being over intoxicated. There can be a lot of things that catalyst us into making these big life changes. And I think it's important for people to recognize that. And then also, if you're someone that is on either end of the spectrum, like recognizing, like, if you know someone that's sober, supporting them, loving them, asking, how can I support you in this instead of trying to understand it because you might not end up understanding it. And then on the other end, if you're the person that is sober, being okay with people not understanding the choices that you're making to better your life, as long as you feel really grounded and proud of the decisions that you're making. Yeah. I think, how do you support or how can I support you? I love that you said that. And I think Again, going back to the label thing, I don't like, I think words are important. Like I said, you don't have to say you're an alcoholic. You can say, I have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, or I have struggled with alcohol. Same with depression. I didn't want to label myself as depressed. That was the last thing I wanted to do. Now, I, that's not who I am. I am not, like, because I've struggled with depression, that isn't, I, I don't have to label myself as depressed. I can say mm-hmm. I have struggled with depression, or I have, ha- I have felt depressed. Same with um, trauma and being victimized. I don't need to say I am a victim. I can say I have been victimized. And it kind of takes that away from you as a being of your core. That is who you are because it's not who you are. And I think that's important to understand is society wants to label us because it's easier, but you do not have to do that. But I love that you said, if you're, if you have a loved one that struggles with anything, if that's depression, instead of 
trying to understand because you probably won't understand their depression. That is extremely hard to understand. I don't even understand mine, to be honest, sometimes. And so being moving from that to how can I support you is incredibly loving and incredibly healing for both people. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people do that. Yeah, it, it takes work to recognize how you can show up for those people in your life that are living their lives a different way than you are or are experiencing things differently than you are. And one thing, Chelsea, I think that is so cool just since I've gotten to really know you since we started doing book club in January is just all the different ways that you are showing up for yourself and all the different things that you're doing in terms of like your self-development journey. And I'm such a big believer in self-development and finding things that challenge us to be the best that we can be and look within ourselves and have those hard discussions. And what, what encouraged you to want to do some of that work? I know it started within therapy, but then in the last few months, you've been the book club and now you know you're staying sober and I feel like there's just a lot of different things that you're doing for yourself that you know that fill up your cup I mean even last week we were going to meet together and you recognize like I just need to go work out and then take a little bit of time for me and I think so many people can relate to the work that you're doing and it's necessary work to take time to develop in who you are and the person that you are becoming no matter what point you are at in your life. Yeah, I think, thank you for saying that and recognizing that because it is a huge part of my life. And before I used to fill up my schedule every night with something, usually things I didn't truly want to do, but either I thought I had to do them or I would like get something from another person, whether that's recognition, love, whatever that is. Now I don't like to fill up my schedule, but if I do, it's stuff like book club. I really much, very much enjoy that. Um, And it's for me, right? I think this is kind of a side note, but um, something that kind of comes with addiction that we hear about is the lying that comes with that. And I never, I never um, recognized myself in that. I've always been proud of me being an honest person. I always felt like I was an honest person until I heard um, Lauren McCowan, who is kind of like another Holly. She wrote the book, uh, The Magic of a Sober Life or something like that. Um, I heard her on a podcast and she said, people pleasing is actually lying. And I was like, oh shit I've been lying this whole time and I thought I was so honest and you're lying to yourself for one and then you're also lying to other people about what you want and who you are and that struck a chord with me because I was like oh fuck like I've been lying to myself about a lot of things and like even the alcohol is lying to yourself but I didn't know who I was, sorry. I didn't know who I was because I was always people pleasing. Mm. And that's just like the journey that I'm on is having boundaries, saying no, 
learning what I actually want and what I actually feel and what I need, those are new concepts for me. They don't, they don't come naturally. I have to work on them. So that's why the book club, the community thing is huge, but then also taking time to be alone if you, if you need it. Um, and I'm trying to balance those things of like, all right, I need to go to this. This will help me, or I, I want to go to this. And then maybe mm-hmm. not tonight. Like I just need to lay down with my weighted blanket and sit there. <laughs> so I can't remember what you asked. Just, just curious about your self journey, your self discovery journey and like self-development and the things that you've been doing for yourself. Cause I just think it's really empowering and people should feel like at any point in their lives, they can do these things. I mean, it's a life is, you know, we're here for however long we're here and it's important to continue to invest in ourselves for growth and learning about ourselves and like taking back our lives and feeling empowered and doing so. And I just think you've done it so beautifully. I know there's challenges and ups and downs, but I think just being able to like, just like you were sharing your experience of setting boundaries, but like leaning into things that fill your cup up and recognizing when it's time to just like have a you night and hang out under your weighted blanket with your cat. Oh, I love my cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, again, thank you for seeing that. It's, this is kind of another, going off on another thing here, but uh, so I I first started seeing my um, psychotherapist who taught me about the trauma in November of 2019. And then right around when COVID hit, um, we I was making, doing a lot of good stuff with her, but still was, still didn't have a job. I was just about to start nursing school. Um, I read a book called The Secret, which some people make fun of, but it's, I freaking loved it. It's about the law of attraction and the energy that we put out is what we attract. And I had a moment where I was, I was reading it and a, a, a guy had just rejected me. I didn't even like, I, I didn't even try to get rejected this time. Like I literally wasn't even trying to like hit on him or ask him out or anything. And like out of the blue, he's just like, yeah, I'm not interested. I was like, wait, what the fuck? But also like, I had a moment where I'm reading this and I realized that I had been attracting that for my whole life. Mm -hmm. I had been attracting this rejection because I thought I deserved it. And I thought that I wasn't worthy. And it was this epiphany of like, oh my God, I have been attracting this. It's the whole, we all as humans are self-fulfilling prophecies. So if we think we're going to fail, we're going to fail. And I had been expecting rejection forever that that is exactly what I got. It's kind of going down a different path, but I think it's important to talk about because what you think your thoughts become things. And if you're thinking you don't deserve something, that's not true, may not be based in reality, but if it's your reality, 
more than likely you're going to keep attracting that. That's super powerful. And I, I think it's an important thing to note of just trying to change the narrative and the things that you're thinking about the way that you're speaking to yourself. Um, and that's why I think self-development and also just surrounding yourself in communities that are going to lift you up and push you towards having that positive mindset doesn't mean you're going to be happy every day, but if you can start to believe in yourself and recognize your self-worth. Totally. Chelsea. Yeah, the stuff. Oh, go, go. What's up? Go, go. Oh, no, I said <laughs> the stuff that we say to ourselves is insane. It, I mean, That's our self-talk, self man, it can, we can be really hard on ourselves. And if we can just start to switch that narrative and believe in ourselves and I mean, it, self-love is popping up all over, but it's so true and mm. self-love is just in, as important, but self-talk, the way that we sit with our thoughts and the words that we say to ourselves, I mean, think about what I had a meeting a few months ago and we were talking about, you know, what do you, when you look in the mirror, what do you say to yourself? And if it, you find that it's not positive, put little post-its up that are kind words to yourself, like you are strong or you are beautiful and just look at them. Don't overthink them, but that's a great way to just start your day on this really positive and powerful note. My last question for you is what is the ripple that you want to create? I was waiting for you to ask me that. I, uh, yeah, this one's easy um, because I've been learning that really all I want in life, and I think most of us, if not all, want to be seen, heard, and understood. And I think at a very young age, I did not feel that. And so I became somebody who was seen, heard, and understood, not for who they truly are, but for who other people wanted them to be. Mm. So I'm in this process of coming back to myself and being seen, heard, and understood at my core. I think this is kind of step one, um, talking about it with people like you and having people see here and hopefully understand me. If not, that's fine. Um, but I want to create that ripple for other people as well. And being able to see here and understand them for who true, who they truly are and not for the facade they're trying to portray. I think we do that in book club. I think we do that on Tuesday nights. Um, but that's, that's the ripple being seen, heard and understood. That's awesome. I love it. We can all start to just lift each other up and encourage that true, authentic and vulnerable lifestyle. I think it's hard, but the more that we can all just start to help each other feel empowered in that journey, it's going to make everyone feel like they can be seen, heard, and understood the more and more we all show up in the world in that same sense. Lastly, where can listeners find you? Oh. <laughs> um, I'm an influencer. No. Um, you can find me. Oh, I love LinkedIn. Big LinkedIn fan. Um, but otherwise, I, I mainly do stuff on Instagram and I'm, I'm posting more about my healing journey. I have a new, um, what do you call those things that are like? I like Highlight. Yeah, I have a new highlight called Healing. Um, my 
at me is uh, <laughs> is C underscore lard, which I came up with in college. C underscore lard, L-A-R-D. Um, and yeah, hit me up. Slide into my DMs. <laughs> that is all we've got for you on today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a rating and review with what you took away from the podcast today. Until next time, let's go out and start creating ripples. Oh,